So one more time, good morning. Good to be with you. If you have a Bible with you, it would be a great idea to have a Bible. If you don't have one on your phone or a tablet or a Luddite version, you know, one of those printed versions, they still make those, by the way. Uh, We have some on the back uh, offering table there. If you wanted to grab one, you could. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll be in verses 13 to 16. Uh, As you've seen from our screen back here, we are in a series called The Good Life. Anybody signing up for that? The Good Life, Human Flourishing According to Jesus. So yeah, we think his advice on this matter is probably better than most. And so today, I mean, we've been going through the Beatitudes for the last three weeks, and I'm thinking some of you are thinking today, that was good, that was very helpful, but we're done with the Beatitudes. And I want to suggest to you that, yeah, sorry, not true. <laughs> this, this particular passage that we're in today, many people, of course, there actually are people who I've read in commentaries who say, you know what, this was kind of dropped in there. Like, it, it maybe doesn't fit or make sense, to which I'm saying, well, that's not correct. <laughs> and, and in fact, most ag- agree that, and commentators, theologians, that this is actually the conclusion to the Beatitudes. So in other words, a part of the Beatitudes. And I want to show you that by reading the passage and going back actually two verses in our reading this morning. So read with me from verses 11 through 16, and then I'll pray one more time. And, and note in verse 11, 13, and 14, the word you, speaking to you, individually and collectively. Read with me, beginning in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord Jesus, thank you so much, Holy Spirit as well, for these recorded words of yours, Jesus. We're here today because we have your word and because your, your Holy Spirit, you Holy Spirit, have spoken to us regenerated our hearts, pointed us to the word, and and shown us that it's true. So we thank you so much that we have these words. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that we have these beatitudes, traits of those who are yours, that you have given to us so that we may flourish in this life and so that out of our flourishing, out of our living the life that you've called us to live, Others would see the good works that you're doing in us, and they too would glorify your name. So, Father, Heavenly Spirit, Holy Spirit, I I certainly pray today that you would help me with this message. It's way beyond, yeah, 
It's way beyond my mind and my words. So I pray that you would take what I have got here, what you've given to me, and use it mightily. And I pray these things in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. So like I often say, I don't always have a three-point sermon for you. Uh, Today I do. Why? Because it's pretty simple. It's right there in the text. So your sermon title for today is Flourishing as Salt and Light. Three points that I hope we'll see today is number one, being salt. Number two, being light. And number three, bringing or giving glory. So it is an incredibly familiar passage, right? Anybody ever heard this passage preached before? Anybody ever read it like a thousand times, right? Of course you have, right? So the challenge for most, what in the world new could you possibly bring to this message? How, how differently can you bring a message about salt and light that, you know, we need to be salty Christians and, and, and we need to be the light of the world? I mean, how, what are you going to do? And so listen, I understand. I feel the pressure, okay? No, not really. Let me ask you to do something for yourself this morning. Just suspend those things. Don't be waiting for a checklist of things that, oh, you didn't say that, you didn't mention that. Let, let's listen to what the Spirit wants to say to us this morning through these words that he has inspired, that Jesus spoke, so that we might learn more about what this means. For you and I here today, these words that were spoken approximately 2,000 years ago. So in our first three messages in this series, again, the title, The Good Life, human flourishing according to Jesus, we we learned that Jesus took this opportunity. He had just begun his earthly ministry, or a few months later anyway, and he'd begin calling his disciples. And I want you to remember this. In the chapter before, in Matthew 4, he points to a couple of guys, a couple of fishermen, and says, follow me. Remember that? And what does he say? I will make you fishers of men. Now he arrives at this point in time on the scene, and he sees not only, you know, approximately, we believe, probably in that day, 50, 60 men and women who are now following him. Many of the original apostles would be following him, but also great crowds. At this point in his ministry, he feels led, probably again by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who took him into the wilderness, to go up this mountain to a point where he can speak to both those who are at his feet, who are his disciples, but also to the crowds that are gathered there. And we've also learned so far in this series that their, their makeup of this crowd, both disciples, future disciple apostles, etc., but also the crowds, is, is, a, is a mix up of two primary philosophical worldviews in that day. There was, of course, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders and their tribe of followers, the Jewish people, But there was also the Greco-Roman men and women who had heard about this this amazing guy who was a healer, a healer like no one had ever heard of before, but also a great teacher. So Jesus knows that their prevalent worldviews and philosophies are there on this hill. I think we often miss this, and we've been repeating it. I've been repeating it through the series. Sorry if it seems so repetitive. But as we often just seen that Jesus is just wearing sandals and a tunic, you know, and he's, and he's just preaching pithy things that his disciples one day are going to remember, right? No, he, he knows what's going on here. And, and he starts with a word that we've been repeating, the first word of the Beatitudes that would have gotten the attention and did of every single person who was there, and it is the word makarios, and it's translated in our Bibles as blessed. 
And so we've, we've learned, again, that as soon as they heard that word, immediately it grabbed their collective attention. And to them, this would have conveyed, especially to the Greco-Roman Roman men and women who were there, that this, this was going to be about the good life. This was going to be about how to get to the point where you're truly flourishing in this life. And so they're all ears. The Jewish people, too, are thinking that's what it's about, because that's what that Greek word that is translated from the Aramaic that Jesus would have used is saying. And so from their perspective, that word did not mean what oft taken the word blessed to mean. That's why I've been emphasizing this word in the Greek and why we've been breaking it down a little bit is because the standard understanding is, is that kind of a blessing is a divine vertical blessing coming down from God, and it's based on the premise that you've been good. And that blessing goes away if you're bad, right? That's not what this is saying here at all, actually. It's not what that word really conveys. And so we've been looking at it from the idea of another word that's, again, not a perfect translation. It's better than happy. Some of your translations would be happy are those, right? And that's okay. But in our world and culture, these words have taken on different meanings. And so we've been going with the word flourishing. It, it, it leans in more to what they would have heard. And so again, when they hear that, hear that word, makarios, which to them would mean a life of flourishing that you're already living into. And so we've learned through the Beatitudes that we flourish first in our poverty of spirit. We, we, we flourish at the point when we begin flourishing for the rest of our lives that the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and we realize that before God, we are bankrupt. We've got nothing to bring to him to deserve our salvation. That's a relief, and we flourish in that. That leads to us who flourish then as we mourn. What do we mourn about? We, well, we mourn about the sin that took Jesus to the cross. <laughs> My sin, your sin, we mourn about it. But then we also mourn with God about just the decay and the corruption and the evil in the world and the sin. We mourn over it. And then we're led, of course, through these two first two Beatitudes of Makarios's to uh, become people who are very meek, we're humbled. <laughs> and our meekness is shown in the same way as Jesus modeled it, or at least it should. So we flourish by being gentle and lowly and humble and meek. This le then leads us to our flourishing as we hunger and thirst not for the things of this world, for the things that we used to hunger and thirst for every day. Now we hunger and thirst for righteousness for holiness. We give ourselves to it, to the word, to, to hearing from the Lord and, and becoming more righteous and holy. That leads us to full and complete satisfaction. The things of the world that we hunger and thirst for never ultimately bring us that satisfaction. Amen? You're awfully silent at the moment. Right? This does. That's why we want to be flourishing into this. So then we flourish as those who show mercy towards others, living out true active compassion. We begin to change dramatically as we flourish in these ways. Our flourishing continues to grow in as the Spirit continues to sanctify us in His work that He does that first changed our hearts from stone to hearts of flesh, 
day by day being purified. And we become pure in heart, pure of heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this then leads to the seventh of the macarisms or beatitudes. We flourish as peacemakers. We, we look at what's going on in our world and, and the brokenness in people's lives, whether it's in relationships, marriages, uh, work environments, beyond that in our community and in our world, and, and we lean into that, press into that, as we'll see today in our saltiness as peacemakers. But we also recognize that the ultimate peace that every human being needs is peace with God, reconciliation with God. It's part of our role as we flourish is to lead men and women to that. Finally, Jesus ended with the reality that you and I will know with absolute certainty that we are flourishing in this life today as believers and followers of Jesus, as disciple-makers. We will know it when people hate us. No, when people hate us for the sake of the gospel, persecute us, revile us, which literally means to blame us for the ills of the world. It's what you believe, it's what you're bringing to the world that's causing my pain and it's causing all the problems in the world. Anybody heard of that? Seen that? Jesus says, you know what? You will know you're flourishing if that's happening in your life. Are you experiencing the good life yet? And so... As we approach the concluding four verses, let me encourage you that it is in these two very distinct ways of being who you are, who we are, that you flourish as you live the good life that Jesus has in mind for us. So number one, being salt. We'll put the words on screen for you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Preparing for this, I was reflecting over this last week about when I was younger. It was a long time ago. And uh, I I used to, very young, like seriously in my mid to late teens, I, I started thinking about the meaning and purpose of life kind of philosophical things, like, you know, like the questions of why am I even here, (laughs) right? What is the purpose of my life? I started reading books like by Napoleon Hill and a few others about, you know, life. Supposedly Christian authors, but anyway, I didn't know in the day because I wasn't a believer yet in Christ. So I think for myself anyway, I've always wanted to have a better understanding of what the meaning of my life was supposed to be all about. Or put another way, I wanted my life to have meaning. So I think that's true for most of us, whether or not we spend a lot of time thinking about it, or you have, I'm sure some of you have, I'm sure most of you have at various times. Meaning and purpose are also very much related to our desire to achieve the good life, right? We want to have meaning and purpose because we have an ideal out there of a good life, and that good life certainly is full of meaning and purpose. So hopefully when you were younger, you started thinking about those things. If not, today's a good day to start. It's a really good day to start. 
So it's important for us to consider this in light of Jesus' teaching right here in the Sermon on the Mount. When you and I first hear the gospel, let me suggest this to you. The story of God, it, it can be like a light bulb going on. It sure was for me. As we realize that whatever our previous understanding of the meaning and purpose of life was, has just now gone out the window. It's like, wow. It's a tremendous realization. We, we learn from reading the Word of God and from studying it, and those of you who have been around the rock for a long time, you know we talk about these four things all the time. When, when we study the Scripture and we come to it, what are we learning? We're learning four things. Who God is what he has done. As a result of that, we learn more clearly who we really are in light of him and his holiness and what he has done for us, even when we didn't ask him to do it. And out of that then, how we should then live. Meaning and purpose for my life, for your life in Christ, changes at that point, or at least it really should. At that point, we know that we actually have a brand new identity. We are new creations in Christ. We are, yes, born again, new creations. We are, and you all know this again as rocksters, we are family. We are servants. We are missionaries. We are baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. This is our new identity and who we are. And our meaning and purpose at that point changes dramatically. We've been given a mission as part of the church that Jesus is building to go and make disciples of all nations. And by the way, it gets better. It becomes clearer. Jesus reveals to his disciples on that day, I believe, and to you and I here today, who we are in a very profound way as to give you and I the ultimate meaning and purpose for our lives. Beginning with first. 13, Jesus summarizes, I believe, the primary function of believers in the world today. It's our primary function within our new identity. You're going to love this one. You can use Instagram for it. It can be boiled down to one word, influence. To be influencers in this world. Jesus reveals to us the two key ways that we are... A-R-E, are to be influencers in this life, in this world. It's pretty simple. We are to be salt, and we are to be light. So Jesus looks directly at the men and women in front of him and at his feet, and he says, the way that you will flourish in this life on a day-to-day basis is to be salt and light, to be it, not to act it, but to be it. Put all the Beatitudes together and the result is people are people who are being influencers for the sake of the kingdom and God's glory. So let's begin looking at this thing called salt. Here's, get your checklist out, okay? Let me also say, just to begin as we look at salt, if you're lacking a little confidence about being an influencer in this world today and maybe that lack of confidence, the words before about being hated, and persecuted, I understand. I I don't like it either. (laughs) Who does? Right? But please just let me remind you of the words of Jesus at the end of his go command. We know it as the Great Commission. I like calling it the go command. 
It wasn't a suggestion. It's a go command. He said, go and make disciples of what? All nations. And how did he end that with? And I will be with you until the end of the age. He's in you. He's with you. We have nothing to fear. Trust me, I preached that sermon to myself all week. We have nothing at all to fear from these things. However, it's possible we also may feel ill-equipped. We may think like, well, okay, like Glenn, you can get up in front of people and talk. I can't do that. I, I, I can barely talk in front of people, okay? But it, that's, not, that's not normal for anyone. It's not easy for anyone. I couldn't do that in high school. I'm not sure that I'm all the way there yet. But the, the Lord pushes us out and says, get out there and talk. I will give you the words. He does that for us. But you may think, you know, I don't know. I just don't know if I'm qualified at all. I just want you to think about this for one second. Who is Jesus speaking these words to? He's speaking these words to a ragtag group primarily. Yes, there are Jewish religious influencers there. Yes, there are Greco-Roman influencers there. He's speaking these words to those who will be his disciples, who will truly follow him and will go... And, and who are they? Well, they're a ragtag group of people, aren't they? Yes, they are fishermen, tax collectors, Galileans, and women of ill repute. Right? Most of them were considered in those days uneducated. And he's saying to them these words. This is really important. You, it's in the emphatic in the original language. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. And so in the context of this passage, he's saying you alone are the salt of the earth and you alone are the light. I would suggest two things. Jesus puts a lot of value on these two attributes. And I also want to suggest on that basis, he puts a lot of value on you too. He has confidence in us that we can do this. The other thing that we need to see here is that that word you is plural. It's really important. When Jesus was going through the Beatitudes, which is why I went back to verse 11 and 12, was to show you that the word you will be, you will be persecuted, you will be reviled. He was speaking to the group collectively. In both cases, one grain of salt, think about it. One grain of salt won't preserve or improve the taste of anything. I love to cook pasta, amen, and cut pasta sauces. And it's not like one little grain. will. No, it's like get a big handful and throw it in. Maybe too much sometimes. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> and one grain of salt, come on, it, it, it won't improve the taste of anything. Same thing with a single lamp. It is a city or a community of lights, as we will see. So the, the collective group plural of you is incredibly important. Now, when it comes to the salt itself, I think the first question we have to ask about salt is, think about it, what is the primary problem? Salt, metaphorically speaking here, is supposed to be solving. Why does the world need our influence as salt? Well, of course, that speaks to the primary use of salt in that day, and you all know what it was. Check the box preservative, right? Well, yes. The problem then in our world today, well, 
without any salt, it's the same as that day, all flesh would decay very quickly and become inedible or fully corrupt. So the problem in our world today due to sin is decay. All flesh, all life is decaying from sin, from corruption and brokenness, and therefore it desperately needs lots of salty Christians, especially since we alone, you alone, are this kind of salt. Here's another box for you to check, some of you anyway. In those days, salt held a very significant status, more so than just a seasoning or a condiment as it does in our day-to-day. Due to its role, yes, as a preservative, it was of much, much higher value. It was expensive. In fact, Roman soldiers were often mostly paid in salt. And in fact, if they weren't very good soldiers, there was a saying that was now was in the original Greek language, but it's, we use it today, that they were not worth their salt. This is, this is where this came from, from these ancient days. In that culture, it was also a mark of friendship. You know, like when we invite people over for dinner at our place and we share a meal together, that's, that's a sign of friendship. Well, in that day, sharing salt with another person was a sign of friendship. Why again? Because it was It was rare. It was expensive. It was also used to seal an agreement or a covenant between two parties in that day. So it it played an even deeper role. We learn from 2 Chronicles 13.5, this won't be on screen, that God made a covenant of salt with David. God also prescribed in Leviticus 2.13 that all sacrificial offerings in Israel were to be offered with salt quote, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking. So, so back to the question, put a different way. Do you appreciate the value that Jesus is putting into salt, into you and to me, being salt? Many, of course, have also suggested that what Jesus had in mind is that we were to be tasty, that we were to bring the flavor to the party, right? Anybody? You've heard that, right? First time I heard that one, I went, I can do that. Sort of. At least I can try, right? It sounds nice. Sounds nice. But there's a problem with that. The problem is that the world doesn't actually see us that way, does it? You guys believe what? Yeah, that, that's, that's not salty. <laughs> yeah, maybe that is salty. See, the problem then becomes if we try to be that, that kind of tasty, flavorful, hey, it may say that, but it's not as bad as you think. You know, really. No, the tendency is, is we want to replace salt with what? Sugar and honey and everything nice. So I think there's a problem with that. You see, there's a better picture of salt in human terms. Salt, when placed into a wound, does what? It stings. Right? But just like its preservative powers, it has an upside. It stings to start. It actually then quickens the healing process. It's a beautiful picture. 
Another characteristic of salt is that it creates thirst, something I'm experiencing right now. <laughs> no, it does, right? It, you know, lots of salt, potato chips. Hey, get Okay. I don't want to tell you what I would ask for, but anyway, um, it creates thirst. And so as we are being salt, as we continue to, listen, hunger, and they see us thirst for righteousness, we create a thirst in those we live and press into. They too realize or may realize because of the way we are being salty that they are spiritually dehydrated and need to have their thirst quenched by the gospel and by this Jesus who we're speaking about. All of these characteristics of salt should be true of us. However, it is the preserving influence that we can have in this world that makes the most difference. One other tiny little feature of salt. It tenderizes. I love that. But here's the thing. In order to do that, it needs to be pressed in, and it needs time. It needs to be continually pressed in in order to tenderize. So how, how amazing is this metaphor of Christ's? Like in that day, I, I, can, I can imagine, some of them are kind of going, what is he talking about, <laughs> really? Were all the metaphors unpacked for them in that day? Probably not. But we have, obviously, the opportunity to look back. And so how do we, when you think about it, how, how can we maximize our effectiveness as salt in this world? Well, we need to spread out upon this decaying world. We need to press ourselves individually and collectively into the decay, into brokenness. Salt, of course, as you know, can sit in a salt shaker for a long time. <laughs> it's got to be shaken out. It's got to be used in order to have any effect or do any good whatsoever. In Jesus's time, its effect was maximized when it was poured upon and as I've been alluding to, rubbed into the meat. Like you can just pour it on and leave it aside. You had to rub it on and put it on, pardon me, and rub it in, rub it in, almost to the point where it was dissolving. Although it actually, technically, scientifically, doesn't do that. We'll get there. We must allow God to rub us into the world, one commentator said that I read. He also said, without our becoming like the world, we may fear that we will disappear and disappear we may. But that is the point. Salt dispenses its power as it dissolves into the world's flesh. That is when its effect is greatest. So I want to suggest to you as salty people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, in us, within us, when we penetrate society, we are being fleshed out into flesh, just like Jesus did and was. There's a downside. Verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I'm going to have to use the word, but this is how we fail at being salt. We learned during our spiritual warfare series that we essentially have two choices in our lives as Christians when we are told to go in the, into the world but not be of the world. 
we, we can either go into the world and be influenced by the world or we can influence the world. The idea we should see here is this. Salt can't actually lose its taste. I researched this very carefully because I know there's arguments about this, but it, it, it actually can't lose its taste. But it can be diluted for certain. In those days, though, it was different. It wasn't a matter of being diluted in too much water. It's still there. <laughs> it's still there. No, in those days, the trick was, like illicit drug sales today, it was cut with other substances that weren't salt but were crystalline and looked like salt. And so you'd come home from the market with a bag full of this stuff and, and you would start putting it in your food and be going, ah, that's not very salty. Or you'd be pressing it into the meat and like it's actually not doing what salt was. Some of it was, but some of it wasn't. And all of a sudden you'd, you'd actually taste it and you go, it was not pure salt. You would take it outside and just spread it on a part of the garden that you wanted to die. <laughs> it was useless because it had been cut. So friends, our greatest enemy, listen, our greatest enemy, and you know this, I hope you do, has no desire whatsoever to see you and I flourish in this life. He has no desire to see that. And he also knows that if he can prevent us from being salt and light, then we will never experience the good life that God has for us, the kind of flourishing that God, in fact, has for us. And listen, neither will those who are lost and whose flesh and bodies and lives is decaying and is in darkness. The worldview of our culture is diametrically opposed to that of Christ. Therefore, if we allow ourselves to be cut, to be diluted by it, we will be of no use. Friends, I've lived for many, many years trying to think along the sides the idea that, well, you know, all we need to do is go out there into the world and find, you know, the, a little, little glimmer of the Imago Dei in someone. We just got to walk alongside of them. And it's like, yeah. Actually, what I've seen in my own life and the life of many others is we're more influenced by them than we are of them. So that's the point of the warning that Jesus gives at the end. Number two, being light. Jesus continues and says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let me put it emphatically. Must not be hidden is really what he's saying. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. You'll also remember last Christmas, we do Advent series every year at the Rock Church. Last year, our Advent series was themed what? Uh, I love doing tests when no one responds. The light of the world. And you remember the two phrases by Jesus that we contrasted? The one point in time where he said to everybody, I am the light of the world. And everybody's going, amen. Oh, it's awesome. Fix it, Jesus, please. But later he said, you are the light of the world. He flipped it. And so we learned that, listen, we learned and we should know this, 
that he is in us and his light is in us, not just being reflected. I remember many years ago, I wasn't a youth pastor, but I was a youth leader in a small church in Richmond. And I I had seen that. I was going to do a talk to the youth group right about this passage, right? And I'd seen this other guy do this thing, and I thought, this is awesome, right? So I had someone sitting in the front row with a flashlight, and I had a little, you know, like one of those handheld mirrors in front of me, right? And so I, I told the person, like, when I tell you, you shine that flashlight at the mirror, right? And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to reflect the light onto this person over here or that person or you or whatever, right? And, and we did it, right? And it was, it was really cool. It was really cool. And all the kids are going, what in the world does that mean? Well, I tried to explain what it meant, but it's wrong. It conveys the wrong message. It's, it, it, there's, there's a good heart behind it. We're reflecting Jesus. We understand that but it's more than just a reflection. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, we learned that whereas salt is hidden, light is far more obvious, right? Salt works in secret, light works openly. Salt works from within, light from without. Salt is more indirect influence of the gospel where light is listening, opening your mouth and preaching and teaching the truth honestly into a situation. That is light. It isn't a mere reflection, just letting your walk do the lighting. No, it's far more. You with me? It's the difference. One is the living out, the pressing in, the walking, yes, a certain way. Light is speaking into it, speaking love into it, speaking truth, revealing the gospel to people. It not only reveals what is wrong and false, but helps people to produce what is righteous and true. And so the problem that light solves is, as we learned in our Advent series, the problem of darkness. Again, this should take us back to one of the Beatitudes. We we should have such compassion, such mercy for people in the world. They don't know that they're walking in lies and darkness. They need the light of the world. Jesus said, by the way, you are the light. We are the light. Thirdly, Bringing glory. Verse 16. In the same way, Jesus concludes, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus concludes with the words, in the same way, meaning the same way as you press into the world as salt, let your light shine before the world. But the the key words there that I've highlighted there are, are, are the words, so that... And again, yes, does the Lord want us to flourish in this way and live a good life and and sense the presence of God and that we are truly flourishing in this life, that our life has meaning and purpose and that it's the best meaning and purpose that you could ever find? Yes. But there's a difference here. It's not about you. It's not about me. Ultimately, it's about them. It, look, look at what it says. It's so, so that, right? So that they may see your good works. They may see your salt and your light working out in your life, you flourishing in this way. And, and they might be drawn to that. And they may, just like you and I, give glory to your Father. I love some of the songs we were worshiping with this morning. I mean, the idea is, is that people will come here and one day be joining us in singing those songs. Because we were salt and light. Many of you will know a quote that I I, um, 
used from a, a good friend, a buddy, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, a pastor in the United States and, and uh, author. He said, he said it this way, and I really love it. Live your life in such a way that when people ask you, what's with you? Why are you the way you are? The only, only answer you've got, truthfully and honestly, is the gospel. Well, not the seminar I went to, not this book I read. No, Jesus died for me. Let me start there. But let's not miss the goal, as I've highlighted here, that Jesus has in mind. You and I being who we are, salt and light, is so that those who are in darkness will come to the light and give glory to our Father. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does this. I'm thankful when he does this. But this week I'm walking uh, around the golf course like I do almost, almost every day and listening to a, an audible book by uh, David Platt. Anyone know David Platt? He, he's, he can tend to be a little serious about his faith. Anybody ever notice that? He wrote a book years ago called Radical. <laughs> Pretty radical. His new book is called Follow Me. And I'm listening to the seventh chapter, I think it was yesterday actually, and that's why I threw it in my notes at the end of the day. Yes, it was. And I'm like, yes, but it, go ahead, I dare you. Get the book, follow me, and read chapter seven. I double dare you. Okay? Because in that chapter, he says, he, he highlights the question that almost every pastor is asked repeatedly by people. Listen, not just teenagers or people in their early 20s, people throughout life. You know what that question is. Some of you have asked me that question or you've asked your friends that question. I just want to know what God's will is for my life. Anybody got that t-shirt? You better raise your hands. No? Nobody? It's not just kids that ask that question. I, I don't know. Yeah, I want to know God's will for my life, what career I should choose, whether I should date this person or that person. It's amazing. Platt goes through all of these various, like 10 different ways that people have been told you can discover God's will for your life. You know, like there's the famous one where you just, you close your eyes, you flip open the Bible, keep going, boom. You you finger a verse, right? That's pretty awesome, right? You go, yeah. Oh, it's Job. (laughs) It's great. You know, there's the open door, closed door thing, right? You know, I mean... I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. I mean, like there's just, like there's all these ways that we, and and here's the thing. What Platt gets at, and I'm getting at with you today is, it's right here. Can I have that verse back up on screen one more time? It's in the word. It's, It's very clear what God's purpose and will is for your life and for my life. It's in many verses in the New Testament. It's in this one right here. Go, be salt and light, so that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So friends, as we conclude, may I encourage us to see salt and light today in light of the vision of our church. You've all heard us speak about gathering and scattering, right? We've been speaking about that all the time. One reason why we felt led early on when coming here to plant this church to look for a building like this and maybe buy a building like this, thank you, Lord, what was to be right here, to be visible in this building, to be seen, to be literally a city set on a hill. I love it, actually, when the weather's decent like it is today. We go outside and we hang out on our outside with the little sandwich board there that says, the Rock Church, everyone welcome. Every Sunday, people walking by us going, who are these people? What are they doing? That's part of the vision. That's why we did this. 
was so that we could be a city set in a hill. We come on Sundays to give glory. We've been doing that all morning to God, to, to be built up through worship, fellowship, serving and giving by preaching of the word so that we can now scatter into this community individually but also corporately together in missional community groups so that we can go deeper into God's word, disciple one another, so that we can discover together in our community groups what the vision is for that group to be salt and light into an area of this community. That's what we're doing here. You're welcome to be here. And you're welcome to stay with us. That's the mission. And that's the vision. And so listen, may I encourage our vision team that will be meeting after our service today and all of you as you pray for Vision 2022 for us as a church, may we pray and lean into ways that we can be salt and light here in Squamish, our own backyard, first of all. Pray with me, would you?